Father, we are so blessed and so thankful to have your word, to know how it instructs us and enlightens our path. And I pray today that as we hear from your word, that our hearts would be sensitive and our, our spiritual ears and eyes would be open to what your Holy Spirit might speak to each one of us. Help us, Lord, to be attentive to your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, my name, I, if, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Richard Freed. I'm uh, an instructor at uh, uh, the Bible College just outside of town here. So um, it's, a very, it's a pleasure of mine to be here today to be able to speak to you. And as you've seen already, we're, we're doing Psalm 139. Last week, we finished off the, um, uh, the series from Genesis, in particular Abraham and Sarah. And we're moving on to the Psalms uh, for the summertime now. But before we get to the Psalm, let's take one last glance back at Genesis and go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis uh, chapter 1 and 2. Uh, that's the, the chapters where we read about how God created the heavens and the earth and everything on the earth. And he created a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, uh, in his own image, and he gave them dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He gave them a very special place in his creation because they were very special to him. They were the only ones in all of creation who were made to have a personal relationship, to know God personally. God made them for himself. And God planted a garden, it says, in Eden, and filled it with every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And he put Adam and Eve in that garden to work and to keep it. Now the thing about the Garden of Eden, it was about as perfect as any place on earth could ever be or has ever been. There is no sin, no sickness, no death. There is nothing to fear and there is nothing that they lacked there. They had everything. And it was in that garden where God met with them and talked with them and had a relationship. And I, I, I think of all the wonders, like this is the earth, the creation before the curse, before the fall. How beautiful, I mean the earth is very beautiful in many places right now, but how much more so then? But of all the wonders of God's unblemished creation that the uh, Adam and Eve could enjoy, I think probably the greatest wonder of all was undoubtedly the relationship that they enjoyed with their Creator. I mean, that's what they were made for. They were there with God. He was their friend. Now, we can only imagine what such a relationship would have been like. I mean, in all the universe, there's nothing greater or higher than anything than to know God and to be known by Him. Can you think of something greater than that? In John 17, Jesus says, equates knowing God with eternal life. So even if you have all the world and every treasure in it, it's worthless without God. But when you have God, you have everything. And for a time, Adam and Eve had everything. But I think everybody knows a sad story in Genesis 3 when they listened to the lies of the serpent and they rebelled against God by doing the one thing that he commanded them not to do, they ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and everything changed. 
Immediately they realized they're naked. And uh, in their shame, they sewed fig leaves together to try and cover themselves. Things were very different. And then in verse 8 of chapter 3, it tells us that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. You know, before they sinned, Adam and Eve had undoubtedly enjoyed many happy hours of fellowship with their God. It would have been the highlight of their day because what could possibly be greater than spending time in the actual presence of God? But now, they hear God walking in the garden. Instead of going out to meet him, they hide in the trees. I mean, it seems ridiculous to me that they uh, thought that they could hide from God. I mean, he created everything. He put them there. But, you know, all sin is irrational. And, and people, when they sin, and sinful people do really foolish things. So they're trying to hide from God. I suppose trying to hide was just sort of like a knee jerk, you know, sort of a, a reflex action. This is the first time in their life that they felt shame, when they felt guilt. And so they just naturally want to hide from God. They don't want him to see them. In verse 9, God calls to Adam and he says, where are you? You know, he's expecting them. Well, we know God already knows what's going on. He already knew where Adam was. The purpose of his question was not to find out where Adam was hiding, but for Adam to explain himself. What's he doing? God was not just asking, where are you? But he's asking Adam, why are you hiding from me? Adam understood the question. And he answers God, he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Another first. He's never been afraid of God before. He says, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Adam had lost his innocence. The guilt of knowing what he had done made him want to hide from God, hide from the God that he now fears. Adam didn't want to see God. He didn't want to be seen by God. He knows that he is guilty, and all he wants to do is hide. Now, God knows what Adam and Eve have done, but you know the, the most amazing story in the whole Bible is that God did not give up on, on people when they sinned, on the people that he had created in his image. I mean, there was going to be consequences for sure. Their relationship with God was broken. They would have to leave the garden. And now they were going to induce, endure suffering, pain, and hardships for the rest of their lives. And so would all their children and all their descendants after them. But God's incredible response to their rebellion was a plan of grace and redemption that would one day restore, restore God's relationship with man through his only son who would bear the punishment for what Adam had done, for his sin and the sins of everyone who would follow him. But you know, even before that happened, God began to call Adam's descendants to repent of their sins, to seek him and to know him. Indeed, every part of human history would be shaped by God's desire for people to return to him, to know him again. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is speaking to the men of Athens. 
And he says to them, he says, he tells them that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. God made all, all the nations. And he determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. God planned it out, all of human history. Why? He says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not that far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. God wants us to seek for him. He wants us to find him. And yet even as we search for him, he's right there. He's the one who sustains us and keeps us. Throughout all of history, God has called people to repent of their sins, to return to live in relationship with him, to seek to know him and to be known by him. Psalm 142, or was rather Psalm 14, verse 2, says, The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. God is looking for those who would seek him. The reality is, however, that most people do not seek God. They don't want to know the one true God. They don't want to worship him. And they don't want him to notice them either. Like Adam in the garden, they would rather hide from God and just pretend he's not there. Many people hide by denying that God exists at all. I mean, if, you know, if we pretend there is no God, we don't have to answer to him. We don't have to worry that he will judge us. But Psalm 14 says that it is the fool who says in his heart that there is no God. Others believe in God, but they just don't like the God of the Bible. So to avoid his judgment, they hide behind another God that they have made themselves. Romans 1 says that although they knew God, they knew the true God, they did not honor him, they did not give thanks to him, that they, but, they, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the image of the immortal God for images resembling man. Essentially, men created God in their own image. Now, amazingly, Christians often, also often fail to seek God as we should. You know, especially when there's unconfessed sin in our lives, you know, we almost instinctively want to hide from God. You know, we know we need to repent, but we drag our feet you know, we don't want to repent of it right now. But what we do, we still act as if everything's good with God. Surely God understands when I need more time. I'm just not quite ready to deal with some things right now. But the word says that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we are lying. We're not living the truth. We can't pretend Everything's good with God if we're not confessing, repenting. But you know, even when there's no unconfessed sin in our lives, we often live our lives as though, you know, we're here doing our thing and God is off somewhere out there doing his thing. And he only occasionally shows up to teach us something or to help us out if we're having a little bit of trouble with something. And yet living as though we are independent of God as if we can get along fine without him, even for a short period of time, that in itself is a sinful affront to God. God is always present, 
Every day, every moment, he is the one who is sustaining you. He is giving you life, even right now at this very moment. On the most ordinary, plainest day of your life, God is there. And because of that, there should be no part of our lives where we are not always offering up thanksgiving and praise and worship to him. We should always acknowledge our dependence upon him and be quick to confess our failure to give thanks. We should be quick to worship. David, who wrote Psalm 139 that I'm going to get to eventually, uh, understood what it meant to always be dependent upon God. In Psalm 16, verse 8, he says, I have set the Lord always before me. He's always there. I'm always, he says, because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. There was no point in David's life where he was not aware that God was there. He kept him in mind all the time, before him always. And you can see that through, through his life in the Psalms he wrote. He is always rejoicing that God is his rock, his stronghold, his strength, his deliverer, the one who leads him, the one who protects him. And you know in those Psalms where God seems absent or far away or is not answering his prayer, you know, David doesn't just say, oh, I guess, you know, I'm going through a low period. No, he says, God, where are you? I need you. Why are you taking so long? I expect you to be here to help me help. You're my God. It's not just that he knew God or knew about God, but he knew God personally. He's not shy to tell God that he loves him and that he desires him above all things. Seeking God was not a a sideline in his busy life. You know, as king of Israel, he was pretty busy. But that wasn't just something he did on the side when he had time. Seeking God was his whole life. In Psalm 42, he says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He wanted God. He wanted God all the time. He wasn't content with an occasional mountaintop experience. He searched for God. In Psalm 63, he speaks of earnestly seeking and thirsting for God, and he says that God's love is better than life. Now, there's not many things we can say that about, can we? What else is better than life itself? Oh, God's love is. And such a love and desire and a yearning for God is what our God, our Lord, is looking for in each one of us, too. It's not just David. It should be us. David, or Psalm 139 is David's prayer to the God he loves. And my hope is that each one of us today will make it our prayer as well. So the first four verses, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You know, sitting down and rising up are just ordinary everyday tasks. There's nothing special about them. You know, walking down the path or lying down, that's nothing to really take note of. God had been with David, you know. You know, David went through some pretty amazing experiences in his life, you know, with Goliath and some of these battles and running from Saul and everything else. And God was with him through all those major events and battles in his life. 
But God was also with him through those very ordinary plain days, you know, when it's just kind of raining and you're laying around doing nothing. He's observing even the routine stuff of life. God knows what David and each one of us are doing all the time. Now, the Hebrew grammar that's used here tells us that the search is intensive and thorough. It's not just an occasional glance. Oh, yeah, I know they're over there doing something. He sees what David is up to. He sees what we're up to. Nothing escapes God's notice. There's no little things that kind of slip under the radar. God sees it all. Now, there are two aspects to being searched and known by God. One aspect is the factual aspect. You know, he knows every small part. He's got all the data. In Luke uh, chapter 12, verse 7, Jesus says that even the hairs on our head are numbered. And if God knows every hair on your head, well, I'm assuming he knows everything else too. There's nothing escapes his notice. So that's one aspect. The other aspect of being known by God is a relational aspect. All of us, you know, all of us know a lot of things about a lot of people. But the circle of people that we actually have a relationship with can be much smaller than the group of people that we know about. The fact is that God knows every fact about every person on this planet, but there is a much more limited number of people with whom he has a relationship. The searching and the knowledge that David describes here is special and unique to those whom the Lord knows as his own. The Lord is searching to see if we love him. Do we love God with all our hearts and minds and strength? God knows if you love him or not. You know, it's not enough to claim the name of Jesus or to say that you're his disciple. God himself can see if you truly love him. In Jeremiah 12, verse 3, he says, you know, But you, O Lord, know me, and you see me, and you test my heart towards you. God's testing, God's looking. Do you love him? God knows those who, are love, who love him and are seeking after him. 1 Corinthians 8, 3 says that if anyone loves God, he is known by God. God knows those. 2 Timothy 2, 19 says the Lord knows those who are his. Do you belong to God? Do you love him with all your heart and mind and soul and strength? Those who are known by God belong to him. They have been chosen and adopted into his family. In John chapter 10, uh, Jesus said that what we read at the beginning of the service, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for my sheep. And then further down in the same chapter, he says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus knows those who are his. He has searched their hearts. He has seen that they they love him. He knows those who are his, and they know him. They love him. He speaks. They hear his voice. They are listening for him. He leads and they follow. They're ready to follow. They're watching. They're waiting for him. He gives them eternal life and they never perish. They're safe with him. Now David was such a man. His heart was loving God with all its might and with all its strength. 
There is no doubt that he belonged to God, that, that God knew him too. He delighted to be in the presence of God. He delighted to be known by God. And he, he was happy that God was active in his life. You see in verses 5 and 6, David says, You hem me in, behind and before, you, you know, you, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. You know, David's not afraid of God searching and knowing his close scrutiny, since the one who sees him is also the one who lays his hand on him, who protects him, who hedges him in and, and, and watches over him. In many places in Scripture, that, that image of the placement of the divine hand on someone's shoulder or, or you know, holding them, it's a sign of blessing, a sign of protection. And David knows that God is, is protecting him, blessing him. Now, we often praise and worship God for his mighty deeds. You know, God created the universe and all the stars in the world. And, you know, he parted the Red Sea. He brought the Israelites into the promised land. But, you know, all amazing things that we worship and praise God for. But equally amazing and equally praiseworthy is knowing that the intimate presence of God in our daily lives. How remarkable is that? To know that God is there, is here, present all the time. You know, David's thoughts of God are lofty and exalted. He wonders with amazement at the overwhelming and exhaustive knowledge of himself that God has. Now, he cannot comprehend it all. He says it's high, but he responds with praise and worship. He says that such knowledge is too wonderful for me. God, what you know about me, it's just beyond me. It's beyond my understanding. It's wonderful. And you notice, as I said, God's not just observing. He's, he's, he's hedging him in behind and before. You know, God's, keep, don't go here, don't go there. This, follow my path this way. He lays his hand on us to comfort and to steady and protect. Now, a relationship with God is a two-way interaction. You can't have a relationship with somebody if it's just one way. You know, it's not just that God knows me. If I didn't know anything about God, but God knew me, and that would be like a half a relationship. But it's also that I know God, and I know that God knows me. I know he's acting in my life. So I respond to God, and God knows me, he sees me, he guides me, he, he protects me, and I respond to him with praise and worship and thanksgiving. The relationship goes both ways. This awareness of the constant presence of God is not something that we should just be casual about. Oh, yeah, you know, of course I know God's always present with me. It's not just something that we know, but it's something that we should be part of our, just the way we live our lives every day. We need to frequently take the time to stop and consider this. God's present with you here, right now. We have to meditate on this fact, on this knowledge. I've been uh, preparing for the sermon for quite some time, going over and over and over Psalm 139. And it's amazing how... What a blessing it has been in my life because just a a growing awareness constantly the more I spent in the psalm of how God is so present and close all the time. 
And soon when you've got it set, set in your mind, you, uh, you meditate upon that, and it just, what's the most natural response to knowing that God is there with you? How would you respond to God if you saw him here right now, if you could see him? You'd worship. You would give him thanks. You would praise him. Maybe you would be repenting too. I don't know. Consider this. If I stop this sermon now just for a moment, right here, and ask each one of you to bow your heads and offer up a, a word of thanks or praise, how incomprehensible would it be that the sovereign Lord God of all the universe, the one who, who put the stars in place and knows them all by name, how amazing would it be that he would hear your silent, whispered prayer and also all the prayers of everyone around you. He would know the thoughts of your mind. He would know the intentions of your heart. And if you're his child, he will respond to that prayer with grace and favor and love. Think about it. It's amazing. Let's take a moment. Let's bow our heads. Think of one thing you can thank God for or give him praise for. Amen. I hate to cut you off, but I'll run out of time. The big question now is this. Why would you not stop and take a moment like we just did as often as you remember and as often as you can every single day of your life? Why would you not do it all the time? Why would you live even one hour of your life without stopping to worship the God who created you for himself, the God who sustains your life, who gives you breath, who's blessed you with every blessing you have, even the God with whom you are going to spend all of eternity? Why would you not take every moment, every opportunity you have to give him thanks and praise and worship? He's there with you constantly. He'll be here with you, with you when you leave today, this afternoon and tonight and tomorrow. You will never escape from God. Verse 7 says, David says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, that's the highest place, you're there. If I make my bed in Shoal, that's the lowest place, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Even there God has his hand on him. That phrase, the wings of morning, it, it, it's believed to re- represent the, the, the light that, you know, where David lived, the, the sun rose in the east and then shone out across over the ocean. The wings of the morning. It's the speed of light. And David says, even if I could, you know, go up with the light that off across the, the Mediterranean Sea there, or the Great Sea as they called it, even there, he says, I'm not going to be gone from you. You know, maybe David didn't mean it like this, but I think it's like even if David could take off at the speed of light, God's still going to beat him there. 
God is going to be waiting for him. He holds his hand. It's not just that God will see him there, but God will be there with him. Not only is there no place where God does not see us, there's also no place where he's not leading, holding, protecting. He doesn't just observe us, he sustains us. His hand will lead us and he'll hold us. Now there may be people who who feel like, oh, I need a little bit more space from God. That's, you know, he's a little close here all the time. You know, particularly if you've got sin in your life, you're going to want a little space, you know, keep God at a bit of an arm's length. You know, sin does that. It will produce in you a division and a conflict in your heart where you want God, but not too much. If you're at that place where you don't want God uh, to be as close as it says he is, you should examine your heart and say, what's in there? What's keeping me from God? You cannot hide from God. There's no place where God is not. You can't take a break today from his presence. You can't say, I'm just going to go have a day on my own, God. I'll see you back here next week. Nothing, no place. Verse 11 says, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. The darkness is as light with you. You know, it's not surprising how much crime occurs at night in the darkness. You know, people feel that they're hidden, they're alone, they're anonymous in the dark, where no one can see them. Well, well, no one that is except God. At the same time, it's in the darkness that someone might feel a little bit more vulnerable and, and at risk. But God, the God who sees all things, is not frustrated by the lack of visible light. He watches over those who are His, even in the dark. He's not limited by anything. Time, space, uh, place, uh, distance, darkness. We're not hidden or separated from God in the darkness. And he cares for us even through our darkest night. Romans 8.39, you can see the whole list of things that Paul quotes there. Oh, he's got a whole list of things that will not separate us from the love of God. And he comes to that conclusion at the end that nothing ever can separate us from the love of God. Day or night, distance. But you know, God is even closer than that. In verse 13, he says, For you formed my inward parts. That's intensely personal. You you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. You know, the human body is the most amazing of God's creation, I think. And, and it's not just that God can see all things. It's that God was still personally involved in this continuing act of his creation. If God was not involved in your creation, you wouldn't be here today. And David's response is praise and worship again. He says, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. It's so amazing, God. I just, I, I, what else can I say? <laughs> you are amazing. He's thinking about how God created him. He can't contain himself. And you know, David didn't know half the, what we know today about the complexity of the human body. Look in the mirror. See what God has created and worship him. 
In verse, verse 15, he sort of repeats himself a bit. He says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. David repeats here how God sees every moment of his life, even from the very beginning when he was formed in the womb. That word in uh, verse 16, unformed substance, that can, is translated almost, uh, could be translated as embryo. God saw him when he was unformed. There was nothing about him that would indicate what he's going to be like or his future, but it was still known to God. From the very first moments of his existence, every day of his life was fully known to God. God knew that each one of us would be here this morning. God does not have an actual book that he writes in, like he's talking. Think of it, that would be ginormous, wouldn't it? But his knowledge of our days is as certain as if they were written down in a book. Things written down are not going to be changed or erased. They're there. Our days, our future, what I shall be, how long shall I live, what of the events of my life will be. Not a surprise to God. He knows them all. And the next two verses, verses 17 and 18, seem like a natural response to the thought of God's incredible and unfathomable knowledge of us. He says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! How precious. That word precious there could also be translated as difficult or weighty, heavy, something of value, something, you know, complex, something of great importance. How precious. To me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. So David, this is more praise from David. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. You know, he's saying, God, you've done something incredible here. The fact that you know all this. How vast, there's no limit to what you know. The thoughts of God are too magnificent, too numerous, too exalt, exalted for David to comprehend. Uh, a creature cannot fully comprehend their creator. But David responds just by amazement, worshiping God. When it says, when I wake, it, waking implies that someone's been sleeping. Verse 18 has actually generated, a, there's a lot of different... Um, interpretations of this. Like, why was he asleep? Is it that he's spiritually unfocused or is he physically drowsy? Uh, Some theologians suggest that David is just so overwhelmed by all his thoughts that he's like exhausted and he's therefore like he's falling asleep from exhaustion, from the enormity and the volume of what God is thinking. Others suggest that David is, is emphasizing that Contemplating God's thoughts about you never end. They just go on and on till the end of the day when he falls asleep thinking about God and when he awakes, he's still thinking about God. God's thoughts never end. There's another interpretation also is that the word awake here is a resurrection word. Now there's two Hebrew words used for awake in the Old Testament. One's used very commonly, and one's used less, not that often. This is one of the words that's not used that often. 
But some other places where it is used, it's usually used in the context of the resurrection. In Psalm 17 and in Daniel 12 and Isaiah 26, it's always used this word awake as waking in a resurrection. And so that interpretation would also fit here because it's the idea that God's thoughts of David encompass his entire life from the time he was an embryo to the time he fell asleep in death. But when he awakes, when he is resurrected, God's still there. He's still with God. The thoughts have not ended. Now verse 19, the psalm kind of takes a a funny turn, or what we might think is a funny turn. And he says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. You know, Psalm 139 has a lot of wonderful verses that people like to put up on their fridge. I've often seen a lot of posters and wall plaques with the whole psalm. But you know, I think without exception, every time I've seen this whole psalm on a plaque or a poster, somehow they forget these four verses. They just sort of skip over them. They don't sound quite right, do they? They sound harsh and out of place with all the other beautiful thoughts expressed here. I think it's just that David seems troubled by the wicked who oppose God. I mean, he's been spending 18 verses talking about how amazing, how incredible, how awesome God is. And it's incredible to think that there's some who speak maliciously about God, who take his name in vain, who rise up against him. You know, David has not lived a sinless life himself. He's had his his good points, but he's, he's done his things too. And I believe here he wants it to be known before God that he is completely different. He has nothing to do with those men of bloodshed. He says, depart from me. He wants, he wants to be separate from them. His love, his heart, his loyalty is for God alone. He tells them to depart from them. He doesn't want to be associated. He doesn't want God to think that he approves of these wicked people at all in any way. He wants no part of them. He hates them completely and counts them as enemies. He wants to make a clear distinction. God, I'm with you. They're speaking against you, but not me. My heart and my love are for you alone, Lord. Now, for Christians who have been taught that we should love our enemies and pray for them, it seems wrong to say that we have a complete hatred for someone. I mean, there's no doubt that God indeed does want us to pray for our enemies. And we're not really given the choice, pray for some and don't pray for others. We pray for our enemies. But we, at the same time, we know that there are evil, wicked people in this world who are opposed to God. And sometimes they seem very nice. But they're opposed to God. They hate God. They want nothing to do with God. They'll speak maliciously against Him. They'll take His name in vain. We should uh, pray for them. God knows who they are. God knows those who will eventually suffer his judgment and wrath. But that's up to God to know and not us. We're just to continue praying for them. 
And we should seek to live uh, godly, holy lives so that like David, we'll not be counted among them. We're not going to play around with sin a little bit. We're not going to have some small part of the wicked. We're going to say not nothing. These verses should stand out as a warning to us not to have any part in any wickedness, any sin, in any way. You know, it's so often easy to tolerate sins. You know, so many sins in our society seem so pleasant, seem so natural, seem so right, enjoyable. But we want to say, no, you know, our loyalty, our love is for God alone. We don't want any part of the wicked. And I believe that leads us into the last two verses where David ends his psalm with a prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Other versions say, and see if there be any wicked way in me. David's so well aware that his own own heart can easily harbor wicked things, grievous things. And so when he says, God, search me, what's, what's he thinking God's going to be looking for? What's God going to find when he looks in David's heart? What's he going to find when he tries him and knows his thoughts? Is he going to see that he loves God? Is he going to see that he has some wickedness, unconfessed sin? You know, I think maybe David ended this way because he's a little uneasy or maybe uncertain that there might be some of the same sin in him that he saw in those wicked people. And he doesn't want to be that way. He wants to have an unclouded relationship with God. He wants things to be clear and open and honest between them. If there's sin, God, please show me. I want to confess it. I don't want to harbor it. I don't want to play with it. I don't want to hang on to it. I want to get rid of it. If God searches our hearts, he will certainly find our sins. And if there's anything in us that displeases God, I want God to tell me. I want to repent. And when I've repented, I want to feel free before my Father that I can worship, that I can give him thanks and praise. Our God is not some kindly old grandfather who checks up on us occasionally. He's an all-consuming fire. He's more great and awesome than anything we can imagine. He cares for us and watches over us every moment of our lives. And we need to be always mindful of him. And whenever we are mindful of God, we need to worship, to thank him. Psalm 139 recognizes that intimate nature of our relationship with God. I said at the beginning, there's nothing of greater worth. You have nothing of more value than your relationship with the Lord. It is what you were created for, even as Adam and Eve were. And in the end, when we come to the end, because of Christ, what was lost in the garden will be restored. We'll have that relationship complete and free again. And those who love the Lord and are known by him and who know him will spend eternity with him in heaven.
I started the sermon in, in Genesis. I want to finish it in Revelation. Revelation 21. He says, look, the dwelling place, the God's dwelling place is now among people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. How amazing is that? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and like again in the garden, there will be no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. The old order has passed away. And he says, I will be their God, and they will be my children. Fully and completely, we'll see him face to face. In Revelation 22, it says, no longer will there be any curse. There's going to be nothing separating us from God. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. His servants will serve him. They will see his face. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will be no need the light. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. The Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, these truths that your word makes so abundantly clear to us are not, uh, they're high. We cannot comprehend them. And yet we praise you and we worship you and we give you thanks. And Lord, like David, we pray that you would search, search us and know our hearts, try us and know our thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in any one of us. Lord, we desire to be right. We desire to be have an unclouded relationship with you. And Lord, we pray too that you would lead us in the way everlasting. Amen.